some kind of worship, right? Would you please join me as we read our scripture for this evening? We are in Colossians verses, or chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Please read these with me. Since God shows you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment and greet those around you. God is good. All the time. time. I'm really glad that you're here tonight. Before we lean in, I just want to share something from my heart. A lot of times we come to church carrying a lot of heaviness. If I listed the four things weighing me down when I came here last week, I could list four things this week. Three of them would be completely different. You see, the constant in life is the challenges. They're always going to be there. And when it's not this, it'll be that. And if it's not what you're worried about now, it'll just be something else. Some things are problems to be solved. Other things are tensions to be managed. Knowing the difference matters. But the reality is life's challenging sometimes. And a lot of times we bring that to church, right? We bring it here. I would like to encourage you to adopt the practice of leaving it here. One of the things that we do is we, we offer prayer. We also have people, Reverend Carmen, Ronnie, Shelly. We've got people who would love to pray with you. My goodness, if you're carrying something really heavy tonight, stick around afterwards. Uh, just come on up here. They'll, they'll wait a couple minutes and have somebody pray with you. If you hear that somebody has a need, if you're just chatting with somebody, Pray with them on that spot. That's got to be part of what we are. It's got to be part of who we are. So there was an old gospel song. It said, take your burdens to the altar and leave them there. And I would just like to encourage you, every time you walk into church, just kind of think about what you're carrying with you. And just make sure you don't walk out with it. Make sure you don't walk out with it. All right. That was all free. Prior to watching the football playoffs on Sunday, I was asked by a friend who I thought would win the two games. And my response was, you never know, but in a close game, the team most used to winning usually wins. I'm just going to say it one more time. In a close game, the team most used to winning usually wins. And on cue, the Chiefs beat the Jaguars and the 49ers beat the Lions. Like it or not? The teams most used to winning usually win. In football, half the teams win and half the teams lose every week. The NFL is a break-even enterprise. The league plays 500 ball every year. But if you follow football long enough, you will know that despite a draft process intended to create parity 
And salary caps, to keep things even, the same teams seem to win most weeks. And the same teams seem to lose most weeks. Teams with a winning culture just tend to beat the house. And they do until they don't. And then they somehow manage to reinvent themselves yet again. And of course, there's an occasional upset. That's why they're called upsets. But the norm is that winning teams win because winning teams think differently than losing teams. All things being said, culture isn't something. Culture is everything. It's everything. From 1992 until 1997, I coached my son Zach's baseball teams across the state in Lawrence County. We were in a little town called Sumner. We joined with another little town called Bridgeport, and we played other little towns all over the region. Our baseball teams did really well. I always had three or four good ball players, and then I had the rest of them. <laughs> but our teams really did well. A part of my co- coaching philosophy was to create culture. I wanted to convince my kids that they deserved to win. My technique was really simple. At the end of many practices, I would simply say, every other team in this conference is going home right now. Everybody practice today, but every other team is going home right now. At this moment, we're all even. It's just a matter of talent versus talent and practice versus practice. We can go home too, or we can work another 30 minutes. We can put another 30 minutes in when nobody else is putting the time in. And if you choose to stay and put the time in, one day, one day, we're going to be in a close game. And we are going to win because today we chose to outwork the other team. So you want to put some more work in or do you want to go home? They always wanted to put more work in. And you would be surprised how many games they won. This is the part of Colossians that's all about creating culture. It describes how to put on the gear of Christ, both as individuals and the church. How do you take all of the parts and put it all together? We have been individually chosen to be on Team Jesus, but now we have to learn to suit up. We've got to learn to use these gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us we got to learn to assimilate into the church. We have to find our place. We have to get coordinated within the larger effort. And we frankly have to learn the Christian way of doing things. Sunday, I preached on fellowship. And I, I talked about it being one of the most underrated forms of discipleship that you can imagine. Because when we are forced to live with each other, it reveals things about ourselves and about the community. You see, there is... Vertical Christian growth, me and God, prayer, study, those kind of things. But there's also a horizontal plane to Christian growth. We are revealed and we grow through the struggles of living in Christian community. It's one thing to be a good player. It's something else to add value to a team. I know of several teams throughout my life that lost their best player, but the team was better because of it. I know other teams that didn't have a best player. They just worked together so well that they could destroy teams that had a best player. 
We need to learn the Christian way of doing things. And you might say that tonight's message is a primer in winning Christianity. How do you create a winning Christian culture? And I'm going to suggest to you it begins on the inside and works out. Verse 12, since God chose you to be holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul saying, since God chose you to be on his team, let me describe to you the basics of what that looks like. Let me give you the basic components of Christianity and what you're going to need to function as a part of the team. These three verses that we're going to explore tonight contain 12 very specific characteristics that we will see in our church if we have a winning church culture, that we will see in our lives if we have a winning Christian culture. These are each described as things we wear, things we put on, our uniform, so to speak. Paul is teaching us how to suit up for the big game of life. And the first thing I want to tell you is that Christianity is a team sport. We are saved solo through the work of Christ, but we live that out horizontally. We live that out as a team. So let's take a look at what Paul is telling us. Proper equipment is great, but you've got to learn how to use it. You've got to learn how to wear the uniform. You've got to know what the things that you're given do. You've got to know what they're for. I remember a story I heard, don't know if it's true or not, but when the great Hank Aaron uh, first came up, he batted cross-handed. What that means is instead of batting like this, he batted like this. Nobody corrected him because he was a better hitter than everybody else. But once he got things straight and he got on it, he was even better than he was before. Sometimes we've got to love each other enough to say, hey, I think you're batting cross-handed. You know, you're doing okay, but I think, I think you might have better luck if you sort of held the bat a little differently. You know, you get, anybody ever coach like baseball for little bitty kids? You know, they'll hold the bat at the wrong end. They'll put the glove on the wrong hand. We got to learn to use the equipment, and we have to do that as Christians as well. So what should we wear? How do we put on our uniform? I'm glad you asked, because here are 12 pieces of equipment that Christians have to wear. If you're taking notes, boy, you're going to love this. 12 pieces of Christian gear. Number one, mercy. In the Greek language, the word translated mercy means to pity. Isn't that interesting? It means to pity. It assumes that one person is in a bad place and that the community will be moved by their predicament. That in some way, uh, their hearts go out to them, and if they have the ability to do so, that they will actually offer help. When we encounter a person in a difficult set of circumstances, we will either default into tender mercy or harsh judgment. We will. We will either feel compassion or contempt. Those right with Jesus will show mercy. You say, what if their situation was self-induced? Mercy. Mercy. 
Through the eyes of mercy, the desperate plights of God's wounded but beloved sons and daughters will break our hearts. And they'll prompt us to action. Mercy. Are you merciful? Or are you judgmental? Number two, kindness. Did you know kindness in the Greek means good and pleasant? It means to have a sunny disposition. Kindness. It's mercy in a good mood. You guys ever do merciful things, but you're in a bad mood about it? I sure have. I sure have. Kind people derive joy from being kind. Kind people derive purpose from being kind. Kind people treat everyone really, really, really well. You say, well, those people deserve it. It's not about those people. It's about the kind person. How I treat you says nothing about you and everything about me. And kindness especially treats people well for the folks that can never do anything for us. How do you treat people that can never do anything for you? Being unkind, rude, or uncivil toward people, even if they act that way to us, devalues them even further. And it overvalues ourselves in our own eyes. No offense, but who are you? And who am I to treat people unkindly? Who gave us that kind of power? I find a few things more generally unattractive than unkind people. Especially when I see that unkindness in myself. Especially when I see it in myself. I'm really disappointed with me when I see that. Number three, humility. Humility is not low self-esteem. It's not self-loathing, self-hatred. It's not a lack of confidence. It literally means to lie low. To lie low. Not push yourself to the front of the line. Jesus says when you go to a banquet, don't try to get seated. Don't just go get seated at the head table. They may ask you to move. Go sit in somewhere else and let them move you up. Humility doesn't have to be the bride at every wedding or the corpse at every funeral. <laughs> Humility means that we fully realize that anything good in our lives comes by the grace of God and because of the contribution of others. You want to know the best verse in the Bible that depicts humility? I'll give it to you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In my own strength, nothing. In Christ, everything. I have great confidence in the Jesus who lives in me, and I have great confidence in the Jesus who lives in you. And realizing that is the essence of biblical humility. Humility is a thankful confidence based on the work of Jesus. Number four, piece of equipment, gentleness. Gentleness is not the same thing as timidity or weakness. A mouse can't be gentle, but a bear can Gentleness is choosing to show restraint, respect, and honor to another when we simply don't have to do so. We have the capacity to be anything but gentle. We choose gentleness. It's showing a steady hand and a level head when your destructive impulses 
or firing. You guys ever just get lit up and the great stupid demons try and take over you? You guys know what I'm talking about? You're just lit up. You want to post stuff. You want to talk. Man, horrible. Gentleness is having the capacity to wreak all kinds of havoc, but you choose not to. To have the ability to inflict damage, but choose not to do so is, is the essence of gentleness. If a gentle person is weak, they do not qualify for the title. It's only the strong who can mathematically be gentle. Number five, patience. In the Greek, patience literally means to abide under. You guys with me? Under, to abide under. We might say it's staying faithful under the circumstances. Anybody carrying some circumstances tonight? Anybody carrying circumstances tonight? It's staying faithful under the circumstance. To abide in the vine as we live under the weight of the circumstances. Patience is staying in it when the pressure's on because you believe that God will give you the strength and it will be worth it in the end. Patience keeps the end game in mind. Patience holds steady. Patience refuses to give up. In one of my grandson's baseball games this year, and opposing, I mean basketball games this year, uh, the opposing team jumped ahead 12 to nothing. Uh, This particular team at present is 25 and 1. And this team jumped ahead 12 to nothing. I mean, bam. And I watched my grandson and his teammates stay calm. They didn't panic. I looked at the coaches. They weren't panicking. They just ran the game plan. And guess what happened? They came back and they won decisively. They were patient and faithful to who they were under the circumstances. When I used to play a lot of softball, there there would be times the other team would score, they'd bat around in an inning. They'd score 10 runs in one inning. And I'd always tell everybody on the team, don't worry about that. Nobody does that every, every inning. Nobody wins by scoring 70 runs in softball. You're not gonna do that every inning. Let's just stay cool, stay calm, get it out somewhere. Let's get out of this and we'll make our own run at them a little later. That's what patience is all about. Patience doesn't mean that you just put up with stuff. Patience is bearing underneath the pressure of things because you know a greater good is going to come as a result of it. It's keeping your wits about you. It's playing for the long game. So stay faithful. Keep doing the right things the right way. Trust God for the win. You feel like you're behind right now? You may be. Hold tight. Hold tight. Keep doing things God's way, and you'll get God's results. Verse 13, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. I'm going to stop there. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you. So you must forgive others. This is hard. Nothing about this is hard. I remember being a freshman and going out for football for the first time. Back in those days, you didn't play a lot. Of, you didn't play any organized football before your freshman year. They wanted to wait to injure us permanently later in life, and so, so you didn't play at all. But I remember going out, and I just kind of remember day one. 
you get the daylights beat out of you. And day two, you get the daylights beat out of you. Day three, they beat the daylights out of you. Day four, they beat the daylights out of you. Day five, you ask yourself a question. Am I going to keep getting the daylights beat out of me or am I going to beat the daylights out of somebody? And at some point, you've got to decide, am I going to be the arrow here or am I just going to be the target for the rest of my life? Because I'm going to have a pretty short football career if I'm perpetually the target. I need to stay cool and calm. Sometimes in life, when it's really, really hard, that's when we have to let what we know to be true but aren't feeling right now guide us. People say, go with your heart. That's the single worst piece of advice I've ever heard. Go with the word of God. And that'll lead you well. So make allowance for each other's faults. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. The Colossians may well have been thinking. We get all this stuff for regular people, and we, we think we can make this work with regular people, but what about those folks who camp every day of their life on our last nerve? You got anybody camps on your last nerve, right? They don't use the porta potty either. They camp on your last nerve. They live on your last nerve. What about the people in the church that, that drive you nuts? What about the people that wear you out? What about the people every time you see them coming, man, you want to hide? The Colossians say, Paul, what about those folks? What about them? I've heard these folks described in uh, ecclesiastical circles as EGRPs, extra grace required people. <laughs> what about them? What about them? Verse number six, make allowances for the faults of others. <laughs> Make allowances for the faults of others. This is an area in which I see a lot of Christians throwing pretty wobbly footballs. When I was young, I thought if people loved God and had a lick of sense, they would become more like me. Right? I mean, think about it. All we really truly want in life is for people to be normal, and we all describe normality as the people most closely resembling ourselves. I always thought if people really were sensible and loved God, they would certainly think like me and vote like me and act like me. And then when somebody disagreed with me, it was important for me to set them straight, to prove them wrong. Sometimes we get thinking about how difficult it is to deal with extra grace-required people, but it gets easier once you understand sometimes we are the extra grace-required people. You know one of the true things I've found in my life? The people who are on my nerves, I'm almost always on their nerves too. How's that for a, a little dose of reality? The people that frustrate you, I would put money on it. You frustrate them as well. What? Yeah. Yeah. Make allowances for the faults of others. It's kind of like honking your horn in America when you're in the car, as opposed to honking your horn when you're in other countries. In America, we don't honk our horns very often, do we? But when we do, it sends a very clear message. You are an idiot. <laughs> right? 
Stop drifting into my lane. Get off your stinking phone. Can't you see the light is green? We don't honk if we don't think someone's an idiot. We don't. It's like an idiot warning. Americans don't honk our horns much, but when we do, we are serious. In other countries, they don't blare their horns occasionally. They tap them constantly. Beep, 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 beep. Because if you ever go to Honduras, beep, 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 drives you insane. In America, when I hit my horn, I say, you are an idiot. In Honduras, it goes, I'm here, I'm here, I'm here, I'm still here, beep, beep, I'm here, I'm here, look at me, I'm over here, beep, 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 I might be in your blind side, beep, beep, beep. Horrible. I have found that as I get older, and as I mature in faith, I actually tend to blare my horn less, and I tap it more. And I'm not talking about driving, I'm talking about leading. When I was young, I wouldn't address things until it was on my very last nerve. I wouldn't confront people until things had gotten really, really bad. You know what that's like doing? It's like seeing a weed in your garden when it's this big. And when it's that big, all you can do is go like that. But if you wait till it's six foot tall and you pull it out, it's going to take half the garden with you. As I've gotten older, I don't just blare my horn at six feet tall weeds. I just sort of keep the garden up. Beep, 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 beep. I don't honk when I'm fast mad. And I don't wait until I'm slow mad. I just kind of tap away. Just let's keep this thing moving. Is it a little hard sometimes? It's always hard sometimes. I mentioned every week we all come in with stuff. Yeah, it's hard. But I'm going to tell you, it's a better system just to keep tapping that horn. These days, I, I tend to offer correction, ask for clarity, even confront. And I just do it in the moment, not with emotion, not later. Don't wait till I'm all mad and angst-filled. Now, my conversations with people are, are no longer horn blasts declaring you are an idiot. They're firm instructions on how to keep their car on the road, to stop driving so dangerously, maybe to quit running into the other cars, maybe just to stay between the lines. I don't confront because I'm mad. I don't get mad much. I confront because I want that person to grow in Christ. I confront because I want a healthy church culture. Church discipline is providing essential lessons in functionality. And they're intended for the good of the church and the good of the individual. But to learn those lessons, we have to be open to what God may be saying for us. We're always open to people telling us how wonderful we are. But what happens when God sends somebody to shove on us a little bit? Or what happens if that extra grace required person is exactly what you need in your life. What happens when we are that person? There's no downside to getting better. 
There's no downside to learning to put your equipment on. There's no downside to learning to better use your equipment. There's no downside to better learn to be on the team. But I'm going to tell you, it, 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 it's not just loving. At times, it's shoving. And I'm also going to tell you, the more self-aware you are, the less other people will have to shove. You say, well, I don't really like being critiqued. Well, then critique yourself. And you'll get critiqued a whole lot less. So let's take a look at what that looks like. Number seven, forgiveness. I decided a long time ago that I'm going to make it really hard for somebody to offend me. I remember once somebody said something absolutely horrible to Melissa, my wife. And she looked at them and she said, I'm just curious. Are you trying to offend me or are you just stupid? (laughs) And I thought, that's awesome. That is awesome. I'm just going to make it really hard for people to offend me. I will sometimes have people apologize to me, and I always gladly accept, but the reality is I almost never took off an offense in the first place. I do my best to choose to see things in the best possible light. I try to offer people the benefit of the doubt. If they're rude to me, I figure that maybe they're just having a terrible day, and they've been rude to everybody. I try to show patience with people. I try to be pastoral. And I hold all that intention with the best interest of the church and the best interest of the Christian growth of the individual. And there are times that we need to push on things a little bit, but I'm always going to be quick to offer forgiveness. And if I mess up, I'm going to be quick to ask for forgiveness. You see, staying in a humble state has no downside. It just has no downside. If somebody comes up to you and says, I, I think something's wrong in your life. You know, you know. Uh, or you could say, well, I don't see it, but why don't you pray for me? I remember once my dad had somebody come up to him, and they, they said, we, we think you're full of something. And uh, dad, dad just looked at him, and he goes, well, if I am, I don't want to be. Would you just pray that if I am, God's work would be done in my life? And I thought, that is awesome. And it's just awesome. Let's just be humble. Let's just be humble. Let's, let's be forgiving. Let's be quick to forgive others. And if that kind of approach sounds naive, it seems to work for me. It just seems to work. I've been in vocational ministry for 38 years. And I can tell you I am not jaded, I'm not bitter, and I'm not all full of angst. I don't go at home and write songs about scratching my eyes out. I, I don't. I go home and I hang out with my dogs and I try to stay awake till nine. That's what I do. <laughs> Just don't got all this angst going on. I, the more forgiving you are, the less baggage you carry. The lighter your load becomes. The more you choose not to take offense, the wind's yours. The wind is yours. Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer that we are forgiven to the extent that we forgive. I forgive you so Jesus will forgive me. You forgive me so Jesus will forgive you. We don't forgive to let bad, mean people off the hook. We forgive to let ourselves off the hook of bitterness and hate. We forgive so that it doesn't occlude our relationship with God. No long-term relationship with a person, a group, 
an employer, or an institution is possible without forgiveness. And anybody who has been in any long-term relationship will tell you the key is forgiveness. The key is forgiveness. And the more unforgiving people are, the more they will cycle through. They will just cycle through. We've all been hurt. Fair enough? We've all been hurt. And our society is always going to say, you've been hurt, we need to stop the whole world and tend to it. And sometimes that's true. And a lot of times we just need to stink and get over it and move on and let it go and forgive. Well, I need it fixed. Okay, but I can only fix half of stuff. And you can too. And I don't know how to make things right with somebody that's hurt you that's never asked to be forgiven. I just know sometimes forgiveness just has to come unilaterally so it doesn't chew us up. So that Satan doesn't get a foothold in our lives. I do think there is something to be said. Not all of the time. Sometimes things are very deep and we need help and we need professional help. Is everybody with me? But a lot of times we just need to choose to forgive and move on. There's an old saying, an old story in the aftermath of the Civil War. Uh, Robert E. Lee, who was the uh, primary general in the South after the war, uh, was riding through a place in the South, and he was riding to a plantation, and he was stopped by an owner, a woman, who owned the plantation. And she said, look what the Yankees did to my beautiful tree. She had this ancient tree that had once been incredible, and it had been shot, and it was just looking terrible. She said, what should I do? And he said, cut it down and forget it. Sometimes we just need to cut it down and forget it. We just need to move on. Folks, there are times that we just got to say, I've been here long enough. This has been going on long enough. Satan has wasted enough of my time. And this ends here. Forgiveness. And then verse 14 says, above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. What makes the engine run? What makes the team work together? Love. Love. This is the most important piece of equipment that we have. It's not just love. It's God's kind of love. No strings attached. Love. The first thing I need you to understand is unconditional love does not necessitate unconditional approval. That is the great lie of our culture. God loves us unconditionally. He will never approve of our sin. In fact, there are times when a failure to confront bad behavior is a failure to love. Good parents don't discipline their children because they hate them or because they're angry at them. Good parents discipline their children because they want what's best for their kids and because they love them. Life in the church works the same way. Christian life works the same way. God loves us the way we are. Can I just hear an amen? But God loves us too much to leave us this way. Can I hear another amen? There you go. You're completely loved. And God loves us so much that he's going to continue to do his work in our lives. And we've got to be open to that. Verse 15, and we'll stop there. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. For we are called to live in thanksgiving. I want to close by 
exploring, thanksgiving, and peace. Number nine is peace. The, the word in the Bible is shalom. It denotes a person completely at peace. It's peace of mind, peace of soul, peace of emotion, peace in the body. Peace is a personal reality that is centered solely in God. It's only when we get God in our center that we will align for peace. The Bible concept of peace is not the absence of drama. It's not the absence of problems or conflicts. Those are the constants in a fallen world. It's not the absence of a thing. It's the presence of the thing. It's the presence of Christ. It's not what isn't there. It's who is there. It's a light so bright that it drives the darkness right out of us. Peace is the inner harmony that comes from the abiding presence of Christ in our life. That's why in all of those things, you've got a problem to be solved, solve it. But if you've got a tension to be managed, you need to invite the peace of Jesus into that situation. You just invite his peace into that situation. And then number 10 is Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an appropriate human response to the gospel message. How could I possibly understand the sinful person I am and comprehend what Christ has made available to me through his life, death, and resurrection and not be filled with thanksgiving? It's impossible. I'm going to say this. If there are ungrateful Christians, they just don't get it. I would go further to say that ungrateful Christian is an oxymoron. Thanksgiving is the antidote to entitlement. You want to take your life in a bad direction, start feeling entitled. Start deciding you deserve all kinds of stuff because of all sacrifices you've made. I guarantee you nothing's going to go well for you. Did you know that Thanksgiving is also a preserver of peace? When I think about all I deserve that I'm not getting, it's very different than when I think about all of the good things God has given me that I don't deserve. And that's where you got to live. That's where you got to make your address. You see, if you think the world owes you something, you're going to lose your peace. You get bitter and unforgiving, you're going to lose your peace. You get all prideful and entitled, you're going to lose your peace. You place your identity in anything other than Christ, you're going to lose your peace. It's not a matter of getting it, it's a matter of keeping it. Thanksgiving is the spiritual apple a day that keeps the devil away. Count your blessings in the morning. Experience peace throughout the day. Next week, we're going to cover uh, the last two of these, and we're actually going to do some self-evaluation as to how we're doing on all this stuff. I want to suggest to you, the more we evaluate ourselves, the more stringently that we evaluate ourselves, the more we can grow without God having to send prophets around to annoy us. I had somebody come up once and say, I'm a prophet. And I said, boy, I bet you don't get invited to many birthday parties, you know, but if you're choosing, don't choose to be a prophet. Choose to be an encourager. Boy, you're, you get 20 invitations to birthday parties every day if you're an encourager. You're a prophet? That's a, that's a rough call. 
That is a rough call. But I'm going to tell you, the more introspective you are, the more that you take your stuff before God, the more you look inside your own heart, the less you're going to need prophecy. The more you apply what you learn in the word to your life, the more you get this stuff, the more that understanding increases as you're at church, the less you're going to need prophets. Sometimes we still need them. But I sure like it better when... God can speak to me in ways that are easier to receive. I want to encourage you to do something this week. Be thankful. Count your blessings. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song in church called Count Your Blessings. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. You think the world owes you something, and you will lose your peace when you realize that Jesus gave you everything. You'll guard your peace. The antidote to anxiety is thanksgiving. Put your head and your heart there, and your head and heart will be firmly in the hands of Christ. All right, folks, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to pray, and I would like for you to please repeat this after me with each little verse here. Dear God, will you please forgive me of my sins? Will you please help me to forgive others who have hurt me? Will you please help me seek forgiveness from those I've hurt? Please help me forgive myself and to go forward in love and gratitude and peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Christ Church, go in peace.